0: If you're using the Red Pew Bible, it's page 888. John 4, 7 through 14. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life.
1: Good morning to everybody. We're glad that you're here this morning. We've got some visitors among us and we're especially glad that you've come our way. Thanks so much for making it a priority this morning to be here and to worship God with us. We're really glad that you're here. Um, Don't forget Jordan has exhorted us. If you'd like a t-shirt, make sure you sign up this, after, this morning or this afternoon. And then also those kindness cards. Make sure that you think about ways to use those. And if you have need of maybe some hints or some tips, this might be one of those things that you can share on Facebook that would be really positive. Here's something that we might do together that um, you can use those cards and, and maybe help people to understand that God loves them and that we love them as well. Those are the ideas for this particular month. month of August, our challenge. And I know it's not quite August, but you know, if I waited till next Sunday, it'd be August 7th. And then we'd already have lost a week of the challenge. So that's why we're doing it this morning. Uh, might also mention that tomorrow night, Monday night at 7 p.m., we're going to be hosting an area-wide summer youth series. We call it Jabberwacky. I didn't invent the name, but we're going to host it here at the Katy Church building. Um, our own Jordan Moore is going to be speaking, and Andy Baker is going to be here to lead singing tomorrow night. Uh, the young people, when they get together, and these are congregations that we typically go to Camp Bandina with early in the summer. Uh, they're going to be coming from as far away as Round Rock, over near Austin and as far away as places like Perryland and League City on the other side of Houston. So a lot of young people from a lot of different places will be here tomorrow night, Lord willing. You're invited. So if you'd like to come and to be a part of that particular uh, event, come on tomorrow night, 7 p.m., and you're more than welcome to be, in and be here to join in. Uh, great fellowship and singing with us. Open your Bibles, if you haven't already done so, to John chapter 4. And we're gonna talk about Jesus and his interaction with the woman at the well this morning. This is a passage of scripture that maybe most of us have, have thought about, but Jesus is the greatest evangelist who ever lived. When we talk about evangelism, we're talking about sharing good news, news that people need to hear. And there was never anybody like Jesus when it came to sharing good news. And here in John chapter 4, Jesus is on his way through Samaria and he stops because he's tired at a well and he has a conversation with a Samaritan woman. And the things they talk about and the subjects that they discuss have been enriching to people's lives in the centuries that have passed since that event took place. And these, these events in John chapter 4 will enrich our lives as well. Just this conversation that Jesus has with this woman that he's never met before, but he knows everything about her. As you look at the passage in John chapter four, you'll notice in verses one through three that there, first of all, is a geographical note. The Bible says that Jesus had been in Jerusalem and it was necessary for him to go back to Galilee. Now I've got a map on the screen. Don't worry, this is the last map I'll show you this morning. But if you've ever looked at a map of Israel, the south part of Israel is where Jerusalem is, down there by the Dead Sea. And the north part of Israel is where the Sea of Galilee is. And that's where Jesus walked on the water, was on the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus stopped the the storm by saying, peace be still, that was the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus was traveling from south to north. And the Bible says in John chapter four, verse three, he left Judea, departed to Galilee. And verse four, he needed to go through Samaria. And that's important. Samaria was a place where people known as Samaritans lived. And the Samaritans were different. They were different ethnically. They had different bloodlines, a different heritage. And the Samaritans were different religiously as well. They had a different set of customs for how they were going to try to worship God. They wanted to worship the true God, the God of heaven, but they did it differently than what the Old Testament prescribed. And the Samaritans were different culturally. They just, they didn't do things the way the Jewish people did. And because the Samaritans lived in Samaria, very often Jewish people who were concerned about things like holiness and about being separate from sin, instead of going directly from Jerusalem north to Galilee, would oftentimes cross the Jordan River You can see it on the screen there behind me. And they would travel up the east side of the Jordan River and then cross back over so that they could get to Galilee that way. Because they didn't want to have to deal with or talk to or associate with Samaritans in any way. But in John chapter 4 verse 4 the Bible says that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Let me tell you, there was never an evangelist like Jesus. He knew where people were and he knew the people who needed him. And so Jesus goes directly through Samaria. And the Bible goes on to say that Jesus, when he gets to a place called Sychar, which is near a mountain called Mount Gerizim, Jesus sits down by a well, and his disciples go into town to buy food, and Jesus has this conversation with this lady. I'd like for us to notice three observations about this particular text this morning. As we look at John chapter 4, notice first of all that our Savior, Jesus Christ, has a passion for souls. Brothers and sisters, I want you to listen to what I'm about to say. Jesus has a passion for souls. He cares about people and where they're going to be in eternity. He cares about that. He cares so deeply that he went places and talked to people that nobody else would go and to whom nobody else would speak. Jesus cares. He is a zealous evangelist. And if you and I want to be like him, if we really want to have a Christ-like heart and a Christ-like mind, we too must care about where people are going to spend eternity. We have to. Because that's what Jesus cared about and that's all he cared about was where are people going to be forever. He has a passion for souls and I want you to notice as you look at John chapter 4, nothing held him back from seeking people's souls. What in John chapter 4 might have held him back? In the first place, his past successes. The fact that Jesus had been a very successful evangelist. He had been preaching and teaching in places like Galilee and in Judea and Jerusalem. And the scripture says in John chapter four, verse one, that the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. John the baptizer was famous. Everybody knew who he was. And they, people were going out in droves to be baptized by John. But now Jesus' ministry has eclipsed John's. Jesus is more popular and more famous than John the baptizer ever was. And that's exactly what John the baptizer wanted. He said, he must increase and I must decrease. John chapter 3, verse 30. And Jesus, as he's on his way through Samaria, could have said, you know, I've got a pretty good ministry going in Judea already, and I've got people to teach in Galilee already. I'm just going to take a breather. I'm going to take a break. I'm not going to involve myself with these Samaritans. But that wouldn't hold Jesus back his past successes. Notice as well that Jesus was not held back by his own physical needs. In John 4 verses 6 through 8, the Bible describes him as being tired. And he asks this woman for a drink of water. He is human and divine at the same time. And in his humanity, he becomes tired. He becomes hungry. He becomes thirsty. And Jesus is weary on the the way. He's traveling. And he could have said, you know, I know that this lady needs the gospel. I know that she needs to hear about salvation, but I've got some things I need to take care of in my life. Look at how physically tired and hungry and thirsty I am. It's not time yet to share the truth, to share the gospel, but that wouldn't hold Jesus back. You know, sometimes when it comes to helping someone else with their soul, helping them to to, to be in a better place where their soul is concerned. Sometimes it costs us personally. Sometimes we're not able to do everything that would make us comfortable because we care about somebody else. That's Jesus, that's Christ-like. Notice what else didn't hold him back, the prejudices of his day. John chapter four, verse nine, he asked the woman for a drink and look at what she says in John four, verse nine. How is it, she says, that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And then John adds the comment to John 4, verse 9, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. They just don't talk. They don't cross boundaries. They don't don't associate with each other. This just doesn't happen. And she is surprised that he's talking to her. Because Jesus just broke all kinds of taboos. He crossed cultural boundaries. He crossed ethnic boundaries. He crossed gender boundaries. Men talking to women alone at places like Wells. He crossed all these boundaries, religiously even, because he cared about speaking to this woman about who she is and about her relationship with God. Sometimes especially, especially in our modern world, caring about people's souls means that we're going to have to cross boundaries and barriers for the sake of sharing good news with people who need to hear it because we care about them. And it's sometimes uncomfortable and it's sometimes difficult for us, but this is what Jesus did and we're to follow his example. Don't be restrained by the prejudices of your day. In fact, the Great Commission... In Matthew 28 verses 18 through 20, go make disciples of all nations, Jesus said. In Mark chapter 16 verses 15 and 16, go preach the gospel to every creature, he said. Not just the people that look like you and think like you and act like you already. No, you go to all nations because God is no respecter of persons and neither should we be as as well. He has a passion for souls. When you look at John chapter 4, what kind of evangelist was Jesus? He's not held back by even the immorality of this woman. She's had five husbands and the one she's with now is not her husband. Jesus is going to bring that up. We're going to circle back and talk about the subject of their discussion in just a moment. But sometimes somebody might look at a person and say, you know, their lifestyle is so different from what God expects it to be. This woman's lifestyle and the background that she has and the baggage and the messiness in her life, it's so radically different, even from what her own culture would have said was was appropriate. Why even bother talking to a lady like that? Why even bother visiting with her about these matters of of salvation and worship and things like that? Why even try? And the reason is because good evangelists don't worry about the soil, they just sow the seed. Good evangelists, go places and talk to people. And all of us, if we're really honest with ourselves, have morally messy pasts. All of us have issues and things that should be different in our lives. And Jesus wasn't going to let the immorality of this woman keep him from talking to her. Nothing held him back, not her slowness to understand. As they converse, as they talk, Notice the progressive understanding that she comes to about who Jesus is. In verse 9, who is he? He's a Jewish man. You see it in your passage? John chapter 4 verse 9, how is it that Jew, a Jew, a man have conversation with me, a Samaritan woman? But then a little bit later in the conversation in verse 19, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She still doesn't get it. She still doesn't understand who Jesus is. But then a little bit later in verse 25, she admits and talks a little bit about the Messiah. We know that when the Messiah comes, he's gonna tell us all things. And then in verse 29, when she goes back into the village and begins to talk to her neighbors and her friends and people that are living around her, she says, come see a man who told me all the things I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Even then, she's not quite convinced that this is the Son of God, that this is the Messiah that's promised in the Old Testament, but she's almost there. Evangelism, brothers and sisters and friends, is not so much an event as it is a process. And if you're taking notes, you write that down. It's not so much an event as it is a process. There is something to be said for pressing people to make a decision. There is something to be said for teaching people appropriately and then asking them the question, what will you do with Jesus? But evangelism most often is a process and it takes people time to come to conclusions in their lives about what's important and about who Jesus is and about what they're going to do with him. And let's not, as evangelists, let people's slowness to understand impede or hinder our efforts to share the gospel. Sometimes people take a while to come around. Some of us, if we're really honest with ourselves, we've taken a while to come around. Isn't that true? Don't let the slowness of people to understand be a hindrance in sharing the good news. Verse 27, not even the smallness of the opportunity kept Jesus from teaching this woman. She's just one woman. Samaritan woman. Got a messy past, got a got a difficult background, a challenging situation she's living in. And she's just one woman. I mean, Jesus has been talking to the crowds. Everywhere he goes, people just flock to him. He goes into a house and people crowd in so much that people have to let down their friends through the hole in the roof so that he can teach them and he can heal them. That's the way Jesus is used to speaking to people. But here comes one lonely woman to draw water from a well. And Jesus sees value even in that because Jesus knows that a soul is the most precious thing in this world. What shall it profit, he said, if a man gains the whole world and loses his soul? Your soul, because you are made in the image of God, is more precious and more valuable than the entire world and all of its contents. What would a man give in exchange for his soul? Mark 8, 36 and 37. He asks those kinds of questions because he knows that people matter to God. And they ought to matter to us as well. Jesus has a passion for souls. Secondly, as you look at this particular passage, Jesus knows exactly what we need. Jesus is having a conversation with the woman at the well. And we're going to circle back now and talk about their conversation. What did they discuss Because there he is sitting by a well in Samaria. This woman comes to draw water. He says, give me a drink. And there are three broad topics of discussion. Actually, their conversation kind of winds all over the place. It's like a lot of our conversations. But there are three big themes that you can see being identified in this particular passage. As Jesus has this exchange with the woman at the well. Three topics of discussion. First topic of discussion is living water. It is a broad promise. It's the passage that was read just a moment ago by Brother Cody, verses seven through 15 of John chapter four. He says, give me a drink. She says, How, why are you asking me for a drink? And then he says, if you'd known who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked of me and I would have given you living water, verse 10. And then she says in verse 11, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where are you gonna get this living water? And are you greater than our father Jacob? who gave us this well and drank, it, drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock. And then watch the promise in verse 13. Jesus says, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. He's talking about the well. They're both by a well. If you drink of this water, you're gonna get thirsty again. You can put that on your refrigerator, you know, where you go to get water. You can put that over your faucet at home. If you drink of this water, you're gonna get thirsty again. But he says, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Do you realize that between verse seven and verse 15 of John chapter four, the words water, thirst, and drink happen about 19 times in those verses. What are they talking about? They're talking about water. They're talking about being thirsty. They're talking about wanting a drink. This is the conversation and it's amazing the flexibility that Jesus demonstrates as an evangelist. It's amazing the way that He talked to people because they just happen to be by a well so the conversation is about living water. With Nicodemus in John chapter 3 Nicodemus comes and asks, teacher what, what must we do to enter the Kingdom? And Jesus talks to him about things like Moses lifting up a servant in the wilderness. Jesus could be versatile in his conversations because he dealt with people where they are. And so he offers to this woman a drink that will become in her the kind of drink that you never get thirsty again. What's the promise? What's Jesus saying? He's saying, I have something to give you. And if you will come and receive from me, the living water, you'll never grow thirsty again. He's not talking literally about drinking literal water. He's talking spiritually about the fact that the things that we really need in our lives, the things that we really deep down inside crave, those things are provided by Jesus and only by Jesus. People want to be loved. Unconditionally, we want to be loved. People want to be blessed. We want to be included. We want those things. We want to be, we want to be listened to and we want to be heard and all those things are found in Jesus all those cravings of our heart desires of our heart we want to be forgiven for the things that we have done that we know deep down inside are evil and wrong and despicable and we're ashamed of those things we don't even tell our closest friends about those things we want to be forgiven of those things and Jesus provides living water is what he's saying to this lady i've got something and you'll never grow thirsty again you're never going to look anywhere else for satisfaction of those kinds of needs if you'll just come to me because I can provide something that nobody else can. It is a broad promise and she doesn't get it. I mean, you can't really blame her. She wasn't expecting to have a theological conversation when she went out to the well to draw water. You know, some people think that this lady came by herself to the well because she knew this was the time of day when nobody else was gonna be out there. You know, she was ashamed of her life and the way she'd been living and maybe she was ostracized even by the people in her community. And so she went out there just by herself and there's Jesus. But she's having this conversation with him now about living water. And after he makes this promise, the second topic of their conversation is her husband's. And the word husband comes up at least five times in verses 16 through 19. Jesus says to her, go call your husband and tell him to come here. And She says, I have no husband. And then Jesus says in verse, uh, excuse me, in verse eighteen, uh, verse seventeen, "You have well said. I have no husband, for you have had five husbands." He says, "And the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly." Jesus is talking to her now about something that is so sensitive that she just, I mean, you've got to really know this lady well, or you've got to know somebody who wants to tell her story around town because you're not going to find this out just in a casual conversation, but Jesus already knows. He sees everything. In fact, in John chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, the Bible tells us that Jesus didn't need people to tell him what they were thinking because he already knew. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what your past Contains. He knows what you've done and how you've lived and the decisions you've made. He knows those things. You don't have to tell God what you've done because he already knows. And that's what's amazing to the lady is that he knows what's going on in her life. You've had five husbands and the one you're now with is not your husband. That's also something that's very, very sensitive, isn't it? This lady's been married five times. I've known some people in my life that have been married multiple times. I don't think I've ever known anybody, at least not personally, that was married five times. Have you? And when somebody gets married over and over and over and over again, they're looking for something, aren't they? What's this lady looking for? She's looking for maybe belonging. Maybe she's looking for financial security. Maybe she's looking for sexual fulfillment. Maybe she's looking for a, a sense of conquest, the thrills and the chase, you know, something like that. But whatever it is she's looking for, every time she gets married, she doesn't find it and so she goes and finds another husband or her husbands are rejecting her either way and still she goes back to marriage over and over and over again. She's looking for something in that relationship that she's just not finding and that's Jesus' point to her. The one you have now is not your husband. You're living an immoral, wicked lifestyle and she knows that's true. Jesus deals with her in a very sensitive way. You know, the Bible says some things about marriage even today. The Bible says some things about God's will concerning marriage. You might just jot down in your notes Matthew chapter 19 verses 1 through 9. That's a passage where they ask Jesus, is it lawful to divorce your wife for just any reason? And Jesus said some things that are really hard for even people today to hear there in Matthew 19 verses 1 through 9. But think about this, Jesus is offering her living water. She's saying, he's saying, if you'll come to me, Samaritan woman, And if you'll receive from me, the living water, the stuff you've been looking for with all these husbands, you're gonna find that not in them, not in this guy that you're with now, you're gonna find those things in me. The things that you really desire and the things that you're really trying to find in your life, the things that you're really deeply thirsty for, you're gonna find them if you'll come to me and find forgiveness and salvation and a relationship with God. Jesus always drove for people's deepest needs when he talked to them. When Jesus talked to that rich young ruler back in Mark chapter 10, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus talks about the commandments for a little bit. And then Jesus says, one thing you lack, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and come follow me. And the rich young ruler went away sorrowful, the Bible says, because he had many possessions. What did that rich young ruler really need? He needed to hear that he should repent of his covetous heart. He needed to hear that. And Jesus as an evangelist dealt with that in his life. Nicodemus in John chapter 3, what's Nicodemus' problem? It's not his living situation, it's not his lifestyle. Nicodemus's problem is he doesn't know how to come to God. Unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, John chapter 3 verse 5, Jesus says. Unless you believe in the Son of God, you'll never find forgiveness, John chapter 3 verse 16. And so Nicodemus' greatest need was, he needed to know how to come to God. The Samaritan woman's greatest need is that she's looking for something in her life and she's not finding it. And she tries the same thing over and over and over and she's not finding it. And Jesus is saying, you're looking in the wrong place. Come to me and receive living water. That's why the husbands are brought up here. And then next, the conversation veers very quickly to true worship. It's kind of embarrassing that Jesus brought up the stuff about her husbands and about the guy she's now with. And so some people say she's trying to change the subject. You know, she looks at a mountain that's nearby and the Samaritans had, they had a mountain that they worshiped on called Mount Gerizim nearby. She could look at it and point at it. And so she talks to Jesus and says, you know, I've been wondering, it says in verse 20, "Um, our fathers, they worshiped in this mountain here where we are. And, And you Jews, you say that Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. So, which is it? Because I hear people talking about worshiping God here. I hear people talking about worshiping God in Jerusalem. Which is it? And Jesus says, Woman, believe me, verse 21 the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain, talking about Gerizim, or in Jerusalem worship the Father. You, Samaritans, worship what you do not know. We, Jews, worship what we do know for salvation is of the Jews. Jesus is telling this woman, because she needs to hear it, that religiously she and her countrymen are wrong. They are misinformed. The Samaritans, they had thrown out all the books of the Old Testament except for the first five. And just think about it. Do a thought experiment. What would I lack? What would I not know about God if I left out the entire Old Testament except for Genesis through Deuteronomy? You wouldn't know about David. You wouldn't know about the temple. You wouldn't know about any of that kind of stuff. Because all of that happens after Deuteronomy. And so, because the Samaritans had thrown all that out, religiously, they were wrong. They had taken away a lot from God's Word. Salvation is of the Jews, Jesus affirms. And then he says this in verse 23, but the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. I want you to notice very carefully in verse 23, worship is the topic of discussion. But what Jesus is saying is that when you come to him and you find the living water, from which you will never thirst, when you let him be your savior and when you let him be the one that can provide for everything that you deeply and desperately want, when you let him be the one that provides, you're going to become something different than what you are now. And the something that you're gonna become is a true worshiper, a new identity. When you become a Christian, yes, you become a child of God, a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17. But you also become a true worshiper. You become someone who is giving worship and praise and glory and exaltation to Almighty God. And Jesus is saying to this woman, that's what God wants from you, Samaritan woman. He wants you to be a true worshiper and to worship God in spirit and in truth. It's not about whether you go to the right location at Mount Gerizim or the right location at Jerusalem. It's about what's going on in your heart. It's about the way that you offer sacrifices and praise and honor and glory to God Almighty because you are a worshiper of God. That's what He wants to make you. And brothers and sisters and friends, that's what He wants to make us too. When we become Christians, we put a lot of emphasis on the fact that we become members of the church that belongs to Jesus, Acts 2.47. Or we put a lot of emphasis on the fact that we're now saints, sanctified by God. And that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, among other places. But God says, I also am making you into a true worshiper. Because what else should be our response? When God saves us from our sin, we become a worshiper of God, someone who gives Him glory and praise. And God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. All three of those topics are connected. Can you see it? I'm going to give you true living water. The stuff you're looking for in your husbands, you're not going to find there. You're going to find it in coming to me and getting living water, and I'm going to make you a true worshiper. That's what the conversation is all about. Jesus is dealing with this woman's deepest need. And he'll deal with your deepest needs as well. Third, Jesus sees soul winning as a partnership. When you look at Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well, I want you to notice that Jesus did not do everything. When it comes to sharing the good news, I mean, he's the Son of God, he's the Savior, he's Almighty. And yet Jesus let others be involved in this process. So the woman who's excited about what she's learned and what she's heard, she goes into the village nearby, leaves her water jug. That's kind of a fascinating tidbit, by the way. So she, she went out to draw water and instead of taking water back with her, I mean, she's gonna have to make another trip. She just leaves her water jug there, goes back and she says, come and see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. He's amazing. He'll tell you all the things you ever did as well. Could this be the Messiah? She becomes an evangelist. I like the expression, evangelism is not complete until the evangelized become evangelists. God wants you to be a fisher of men. He wants me to be a fisher of men. And our goal and our desire is to serve him and to please him and to say to others, come and see the one who told us all the things we ever did. But notice, not only the woman is involved, but the disciples. You know, after the fact, the disciples show up and they've been in town buying food and they're not really sure why Jesus is talking to this lady. And so they they start to kind of ask him, you know, what what are you doing with her? Why, Why is she going into the village and we're waiting here? And Jesus says, look at verse 35. Do you not say, John four thirty five? there are still four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, disciples, lift up your own eyes and look at the fields. They are already white unto harvest. In other words, disciples, open your eyes because there are opportunities right here in Samaria. You didn't think there'd be any work to be done here. You just went to buy food, but I have food to eat of which you do not know. Verse 34. Lift up your eyes. There are opportunities everywhere. I think there are some connections that we ought to make in our minds, at least just from this passage, and maybe in your notes in your Bible. Acts chapter one, verse eight, when Jesus gives a commission to his apostles, He says in Acts one verse eight, "You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea." and in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And in Acts chapter 8, when the church was scattered, Philip the evangelist went into Samaria. And this was years, years after Jesus had been here in John chapter 4. But Philip the evangelist, early Christian, thought it was a good thing to do to go into Samaria and to preach the gospel. And you know what? People were converted. There's a process that goes on. Jesus plants the seed in John chapter 4. He tells the apostles, this is where I want you to preach in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And then in Acts chapter 8, there's Philip the evangelist going into Samaria and people are being converted in droves. Jesus sees soul winning as a partnership. And sometimes, brethren, the kindness card that you sow in the next month or two may well yield fruit years down the road if the Lord wills. That's the way the Lord looks at evangelism. Notice this third, the Samaritans themselves become evangelists. The city comes out to listen to Jesus and they hear him teach and they say, please stay with us. And so Jesus relents and says he'll stay with them for two days. And he teaches them and presumably he heals and he he works among them. And there's just amazing things that happen. The Messiah of Israel has come and he even came to our house. He even came to our village. There was never an evangelist quite like Jesus. He sees opportunities to work with others. At the end of this chapter, in chapter 4, verse 41, at the end of this section, the people of the town say this. It's no longer because of what you said, lady, that we believe. I mean, we did, we, we came out, but it's not just because of what you said, but we've heard for ourselves. And we know indeed that this is the Savior of the world. This Jesus that we've been talking to and watching and listening to, this is the one that God has sent to save us. They believed because they saw and heard with their own eyes and their own ears. When we think brothers and sisters and friends about reaching out to our neighbors, it matters. It matters that people are going to spend eternity somewhere. And the Savior that we follow has a passion for souls and knows exactly what people need. And you don't have to psychoanalyze anybody. You can know exactly what people need because you just have to preach the gospel. The gospel is the answer to the fundamental and deepest needs that people have in their hearts and lives. Jesus knows and he provides living water and he wants to use you and he wants to use me in reaching the lost. Will you work with him? And will you have a heart and a passion like his? Thanks for listening to the lesson this morning. Maybe you need the living water that only Jesus can provide. And you want to know, how do I respond to this this person? How do I come into a relationship with God? The answer is very simple. You got to believe that Jesus Christ really is the one who died for you. That he is the son of God. That he is the king of kings and lord of lords. You've got to believe that. You've got to believe he's the only one that can save you and confess his name. Say it publicly, I believe that Jesus Christ is God's Son, Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. You've got to repent of your sin. He doesn't leave us where we are in our morally messy pasts. He calls us out of those lifestyles. He calls us out of those ways of living to live a different life, repent, and then be baptized. Baptism is the new birth. It's the place where we are born into the family of God, John 3, verse 5. If you're ready to make that decision this morning, you'd like to respond and be baptized, or maybe you'd like to respond and just ask for prayers. Heaven's invitation is yours while together we stand and while we sing.